And uh, it is so good to have you here with us. You know, during that Martin Luther King video, I thought two things. One, I thought, man, that brother can preach. And two, I thought, how cool is it to be at a church that not only plays a video on Sunday, but is actually living out what they claim to believe. And the fact that two of our teaching pastors are minorities and preach here on a regular basis is just so cool for a church historically turning 90 years old to, to live it out the way Wheaton Bible Church Wheaton Bible Church has. And so I consider it a privilege to be here, especially on a weekend like this. So if you're new here, uh, you don't know that my name is Will Franco. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the church. And if you are new here and you're searching this whole uh, Christianity thing, this whole God thing, trying to figure out if it's for you or not, we want you to know that we are so glad you are here. And we started this church for people just like you. Um, and so welcome to Wheaton Bible Church this morning. Now, this morning, um, if you're new here, then you probably have no idea that we are on the front end of a series entitled Explore God. And what we are doing in this series is essentially what the name implies. For seven weeks, we are exploring the person and nature of God. And the way we are doing that is each week, we are asking and answering a question concerning the person and nature of God. And so if you were here last week, you know that Pastor Hannibal got us started, started by asking and answering the question, is there purpose to life? Does life have a purpose? And if you didn't get a chance to hear that, make sure you listen to that. He did a wonderful job of addressing and answering that question. And this morning I was given the super easy question, really, really easy question, which is, is there a God? Is there a God? So I hope you planned your whole afternoon because we're going to be here for about three hours this, uh, this morning. Um, is there a God is the question that I am going to be hoping to ask and answer this morning. Now, before I jump in, here's what I want you to know. What I want you to know is that these arguments that I'm going to give you are based in the Bible. So I'm going to read the Bible with each one of the arguments I give you. But what I want you to know is that after I read from the Bible, my hope is to give you extra biblical evidence for why I'm making that argument. Because it almost seems like circular reasoning if I'm trying to prove God using the Bible. So my hope is, is that after I read the Bible, I will give you other reasons that support that point, not just because the Bible says so. Does that make sense? The other thing I want you to know is that as I go through these points, I'm going to be moving fairly quickly. Part of that is because I talk pretty quick anyways, but also because I haven't been given a lot of time this morning. So I got to talk really, really fast. So what I want you to know is I don't want you to confuse my brevity with a lack of empathy, okay? And so if at any point there's questions or concerns or something you want to explore further, if you go to our website, WheatonBibleChurch.org, you go to the staff page, there's a picture of me, click on my photo, and you can send me an email, and I would love to answer any questions or any things that, you know, concerns that you might have as a result of what I discussed this morning. So please, please, please do not confuse my, my brevity with a lack of empathy. I, I've studied these, I've done my best to try to present them, but I also am on a time, on a time limit, all right? So just bear with me. So this morning what we're going to do is I'm going to give you four reasons as to why I believe God exists. Now, you, you essentially should know that, uh, spoiler alert, you know, it's to the question, is there a God? We're at church. So you should know that my answer is going to be yes, there is a God, right? So hopefully I didn't ruin the ending for you. But, but my goal this morning is as I answer this question, I want to give you four reasons, four arguments, if you will, that I believe prove the existence of God. Now, the reason why I give four arguments, not just one argument, is because there's this scholar, there's a, a professor who's down in Florida, and he says something. His name is James Anderson. And what he argues is that when you are seeking to answer the question, is there a God, one of the things that you have to do is you have to give more than one reason. The reason being is because every person has different 
different problems, concerns, and assumptions that they make. And so the reason why we need multiple arguments is because there's multiple people coming from multiple angles. And so my hope this morning is that even if one of the points don't connect with you or one of the arguments don't resonate with you, my hope is that maybe the next one does. And so that's why I'm providing multiple reasons and not just one. My hope is that at the end of this, you will see all the reasons collectively and make a decision based on the entire argument that I make, not just one of them in particular. Does that make sense? All right. So, like I said, this morning, I believe that there are four truths in light of Scripture and in light of the world that we live in that are four arguments, if you will, that can be made for the existence of God. And they, are, they all start with the letter C because I'm a pastor and a preacher and I can't help it, okay? I, I literally took like 20 minutes extra this week looking for another C because I'm like, it's got to be a C. If it's not a C, God won't use it. It's just how I think. So, there are four reasons why I believe in the existence of God, okay? The first reason is culture. Uh, the second reason is creation. The third reason is conscience. And the fourth reason is Christianity. And so what I'm going to do for the next few minutes is I'm going to go through each one of these and present the argument uh, that there is a God who exists. Now, the first reason why I believe God exists is because of culture, is because of culture. Now, the passage that I want to read from for this point comes from Acts chapter 17. Now, before I read it, here's what I need you to know about Acts. The book of Acts is a book found in the New Testament, and it's written um, by uh, Luke. And essentially what he's doing, Luke is one of the followers of Jesus. He is, he's giving us a summary or a play-by-play -play of everything that happened after Jesus ascended into heaven. So the book is called the Acts of the Apostles because we have a summary of everything that the apostles, the disciples, the followers of Jesus did after Jesus ascended. And so in Acts chapter 17, one of Jesus' most prominent followers, the apostle Paul, is in Athens and he is preaching a sermon. And so this is a, a quote from the sermon that Paul is preaching in Athens. Now, the reason why that's significant to us today is because the people in the city of Athens were actually very much like the people in our day today. They were people who didn't really believe in absolute truth. They were people who were very relativistic. They were people who felt that every religion was valid. And so Paul is sitting in a context, in a culture very similar to ours. And here is what he says in Acts chapter 17. Here's what it says in Acts 17, and it'll be on the, past, on the screen here behind me. Paul says, from one man, he, speaking about God, from one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him. Don't miss that. Verse 27, God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any, of, any one of us. Okay? So let me unpack for you what Paul is saying here in this argument or in this passage. Paul is saying that one of the reasons why God exists is because God has created culture in such a way that every single human being that's ever lived has been put by God in a specific culture at a specific time or century and has been given uh, 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 specific confines. Like there's only a certain distance in which you can go. So, so here's what he's saying. Every human being in history has been put by God in a specific culture, in a specific century, and he's given you specific confines, which means there's only a certain amount of distance that you will cover in your life. And so if you hope to go to Paris and God has decided you're never going to go to Paris, you're never going to go to Paris. So I, I hope I didn't ruin your summer plans, but that's what this passage is saying. Okay. 
Now, the reason why that is so significant, that God is the one who determines the culture that you live in, is because many of the arguments, many of the objections that come about against God are a result of the culture that we live in. Because here's what, what Paul's saying. You have no say over where you were born, uh, when you were born, how you were born, over none of that. God has determined all of that. So the only reason why you weren't born during the Holocaust was because God decided that. The only reason why you weren't born in, in Saudi Arabia is because God decided that. The only reason why you weren't born during the, the, the Great Depression is because God decided that. The culture, the century, the context that you live in have all been decided by God. Now, the reason why that's so important and the reason why culture is the first argument for the, purpose, for the, re, for the existence of God is because the arguments that people make against the existence of God are very cultural arguments. In other words, here's what, I, here's what I want to tell you. If you're sitting here this morning and you believe there is no God, I would argue that the reason why you believe that is actually more cultural than it is personal. You live in a culture that has forced you to ask those questions. And you are a product of the culture that you live in. You are a product of the century you were born in. You are the product of the context in which you uh, reside in. That's what I need you to hear and I need you to see. And last week, we were looking at this, uh, I don't know if you were here last week, but in the video that was shown before we started last week, there was this one lady who said, I believe, this is what she said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but she said essentially, I believe that there is no God. As a result, I believe that life is totally random, is what she says. Life is totally random. And as a result of that, I believe that I am on a journey and my journey is to explore all the possibilities in front of me and to choose a destiny for me. Now, some of you might have just heard that and you're like, well, what's wrong with that? That's exactly what I believe. But here's the thing about that statement I just made. That is a very cultural statement. And what I mean by that is there's only a certain segment of humanity that is asking a question like that and making statements like that. And what I need you to see is that that statement that that young lady made, that that worldview that she's promoting, is a very Western, European, modern, uh, cultured position. And what I would argue is that the majority of humanity is not struggling with that question or that worldview. They're not. Here's, here's how I know, right? Because there's a lot of assumptions that are made in that statement. The first thing that you see is that it's a very individualistic statement because she's saying my view, right? She says, I believe that there is no God. I believe that everything is random. And as a result, I believe that I'm on a journey. And it's my job to, to explore all the possibilities and discover my destiny. You hear how individualistic that is? That is such an American Western way of thinking. Because many cultures, and by that I mean Asian cultures, African cultures, Hispanic cultures, Latin American cultures, many cultures, it's not about, they're not about the me, it's about the we. Your identity, your purpose, your, your, your value comes from the family you were born in. It comes from the city you were born in, from the context in which you live in. Only Americans and Europeans talk like that. I, me, this thing, my thing, this journey, my, 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 my destiny. And so the first thing that that statement assumes is, is it assumes that you are an individualistic person. But it also assumes that you live in a free nation. 
In order for you to think this way, you have to live in a certain type of nation. There are certain nations in the world that can care less what you think. You are going to believe what we tell you to believe. So in order to have that worldview, you have to live in a certain type of nation. Not only that, but you also assume that the person who makes that statement, they make the assumption that you have health and you have wealth. Listen, in order for you to say, I believe life is a journey, and I believe that I'm, I'm, I'm exploring all the possibilities and I get to choose my own destiny. In order for you to say that, you are assuming that you're healthy. Because if you have stage four cancer and you are on your deathbed, you're not talking like that. You are assuming that you are healthy and have the time to go do those things. Okay? Not only are you assuming that you're healthy, you're also assuming that you're wealthy. Only rich people talk like that. Only people with means talk like that. Because when you're poor, you don't talk like that. When you're making it from day to day, that's not how you talk. So in other words, if you are a, 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 a widow, an African widow living in sub-Saharan Africa with five kids and you don't know where your next meal is coming from, you're not making comments like this. You're not making statements like that because you're assuming health, you're assuming wealth, you're assuming that you're in a nation that allows you to even make comments like that. This is why comments like the one I just made are usually said by 28-year-old millennials who are living in their parents' basement. Okay? They don't have insurance because they're on their parents' insurance. They don't have a job because their parents pay for everything. So, of course, you got time to, to, to figure out the meaning of life and go on your journeys. Who wouldn't have time for that? So it's a very cultural argument is what I'm saying. That you are actually, this, this whole thing about is there a God, it's much more cultural. It's much more American and Western than you think. The majority of people in the world are not struggling with this question. So I need you to know that it's a cultural argument question that you're dealing with. Okay. Now, you might say to me, wait, hold on, hold on. Here's the problem, though, that if, if, if you're saying that my worldview is a result of the culture that I grew up in, can't that same argument be used against Christianity? Isn't Christianity just a worldview that is a result of the culture that you grew up in? Here's why Christianity is different from any worldview that you might be holding on to. The first reason why Christianity is different is because Christianity is the largest religion in all the world. It is the, the most, it is the most, uh, uh, it is, so it's the largest, what I mean by largest is that 2.3 billion people have accepted Christianity as their worldview. That's literally almost one third of the human race is Christian. Okay? So the first reason why it's not just cultural is that's, that's a lot of people. Okay? But here's the other reason why Christianity is, you can't use that argument against Christianity, that Christianity is just a result of culture. Because Christianity, and I'm going to put a map here behind me, Christianity, the reason why Christianity is different, if you can put that map up, if you look at the purple, everything that is purple is the nations and or countries, right, or continents where Christianity is the largest religious group. But here's what I want you to see there. Look how much purple there is on that map. What you see, for example, with Islam is that Islam, the majority of Islam, the people who hold to that religion, they're Arab and they live in the Middle East. The majority of, of Muslims are Arab, of Arab descent, and live in the Middle East. The majority of Jews are from Jewish descent and live in Israel. What, what's, what's amazing about Christianity is that Christianity is the only religion that, that transcends every culture. 
Even in the places where Christianity is not the largest religion, Christianity is booming and the church is, is prospering in those areas. So what you see is that unlike any other religion, it's not stuck in one region or with just one race. Christianity transcends all of that. That's why you see black Christians and Hispanic Christians and Asian Christians. And if you've never seen all that, just come to Tri-Village Church, the church I lead on a weekend, and you'll see it. Okay? That's why you see it, because Christianity can transcend culture like no other world you can. That's why the argument that can be used against agnosticism or atheism cannot be used against Christianity. Because Christianity is bigger than culture. Does that make sense? You're tracking with me? Okay, so the first reason why God exists is because of culture. The second reason why God exists is because of creation. Is because of creation. Now, this next passage that I'm going to read comes from Romans, Romans chapter 1. And this passage is written by the Apostle Paul, the same guy I brought up earlier, one of the most prominent followers of Jesus. And it's called the book of Romans because he, it's the letter that he wrote to the church in Rome. Okay, look at what Paul says about creation. He says in verse 18, of chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, this is already heavy, right? He's already used wrath and wickedness, and this is getting heavy already. I'll explain these in a second. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without what? Excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24. Therefore... God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So here's what this passage is saying. Okay, follow with me here. Paul is saying that the second reason why we know God exists is because the creation around us tells us he exists. So here's what, here's what well, the argument that Paul's making on the one hand is very compelling and yet on the other hand it's very controversial. Because what Paul is saying is that every single human being in their heart of hearts knows that God exists. They know it. No matter what they try to say, no matter how much they try to deny it, they know that God exists. And we know that's what he's saying because he says, look, uh, uh, in, in verse uh, 19, he says, God has made it plain to them. He says it twice. Then in verse 20, he says, has, uh, the, the qualities of God have been clearly seen so that people are without excuse. And so Paul says the reason why you know that God exists when you look out into creation is because God has made creation in such a way that when you look at it, you see that he exists. God has made it plain to you. That's why in Psalm 19, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God. So essentially what that passage is saying is that the heavens, every time you look up to the sky, the heavens are literally preaching a sermon to you. 
They're proclaiming to you. They're declaring to you that God exists and that he should be glorified. What's so messed up about us, though, is that we look up into space, right? This is what NASA does. They look up into the space, and instead of thinking about how great God is, they think about how great we are. Because we got to the third planet in our solar system. And the Milky Way is like a piece of lint to God. Come on. Creation is one of the reasons why we know God exists. The creation around us is one of those reasons. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, I don't know if I agree with that. Because I don't, you know, I look at stars and I look at trees and I look at all the stuff around me and I don't think God exists. I don't really think that's a thing. I don't ever think about the existence of God. Well, Paul tells you why, actually. Paul says, listen, the reason why is because since you have continually chosen to ignore God, at some point God gives you over to the thing that you want. It says that your thinking becomes futile. It says that your hearts become darkened. One of the things that C.S. Lewis says is this. C.S. Lewis says, and C.S. Lewis is a a, a prominent Christian author uh, who wrote, uh, who died a long time ago and and, and wrote the the, the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis says that the reason why why God gives you over to your passions and your sins or whatever is because here's what we do. Since we're born, from the moment we're born, here's what we do to God. God, not your will be done, my will be done. And the passage says, see, when we hear God's wrath, we get freaked out, right? We're like, oh, no, God's wrath, floods and, 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 and fire coming from heaven. But according to this passage, God's wrath is not a flood or fire. God's wrath is revealed by him giving you the thing that you wanted. God's like, look, I'm not going to force myself on you. If that's what you want, then go get it. And C.S. Lewis says that the reason why hell is actually the fairest place in all of the universe is because hell is God saying, not my will be done, your will be done. That's all you've ever wanted your whole life. God, leave me alone. I'm going to suppress the truth. Even though I know you exist, I'm going to act like you don't. And I'm going to suppress the truth. I'm going to suppress the truth. And I'm going to say my will be done, my will be done, my will be done. At some point, God lets your will be done. And so hell is you getting what you always wanted. God's gone and you're in control. And that might bother you this morning if you're an agnostic or an atheist. But here's what's so funny about hell and bothering people who who don't actually believe in it. I heard a story uh, uh, of, of, well, I read a book and in the the book there was a story. And the, the guy was teaching a Bible study. The author was teaching a Bible study. And he said that during the Bible study... Um, these three atheists walked into the Bible study and their goal was to ruin the Bible study. They just wanted, they were were making noise and snickering and making side comments and they just wanted to ruin the Bible study. And at one point he brought up the concept of hell. And one of the atheists was just so angry and livid and he's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. You mean to tell me that if I don't believe in God, I'm going to go to hell? And the Christian guy was like, okay, this is awkward because the whole room went silent. You know, what are you going to say? And he's like, should I try to defend hell? Should I try to give him biblical reasons for hell? Well, no, he doesn't even believe in the Bible, so why would I do that? And so in the moment, the Holy Spirit gave him this to say. He's like, wait, wait, wait. So you're bothered about people going to hell? Yeah. Well, do you even believe in hell? He's like, well, no, I guess I don't. He's like, so why are you so bothered by it then? You know why he's bothered by it? Because he does believe in it. Because deep in everyone's heart, they know that God exists. 
Now, what's interesting, though, is that in this passage, it almost seems like God is this emotional, petty teenager who, who, who just wants your attention. Because it says that God gets, the reason why God's wrath is re- revealed is because you do not glorify him or give him thanks. And one of the pastors that I listened to this week made a really good point. He said, when I first read that God was angry because we didn't give him thanks, it almost seemed like, God, what a petty thing to get angry about. Like, who cares? Just move on. Get over it, bro. Right? But here's what he said that was so interesting. The reason why you not giving thanks is such a serious problem is because when you don't give God thanks for what he gave you, you are committing cosmic plagiarism is what he said. You know what plagiarism is, right? Plagiarism is when you take credit for something that you did not do. And when you live as if God does not exist and, and, and you, you, you handle your money as if God does not exist and you lead your family as if God does not exist and you plan for retirement as if God does not exist, and this is both Christians and non-Christians who do this, when you do it, what you're committing is cosmic plagiarism. You're taking something that God gave you and you're acting like you did it when really he did it. And I would argue that the reason why so many of us struggle with accepting that God is God is because if we make God God, then that means we're not God. That was good. That was good. So I'm going to go ahead and say that again. When we, the reason why we struggle so much with making God God is because when we finally admit that God is God, what we're actually admitting at the very same time is that we are not God. Okay? That's why we struggle with it. And that's why God's not being petty. He's being passionate for his people. He gave you the breath that you're breathing. He gave you the job that you have. He gave you the health that you have. He put you in the country that you're living. Everything you have is his. And when you pretend like it doesn't, you're committing cosmic plagiarism. You're taking the CEO's credit card and you're using the business card on your vacation in the Bahamas instead of using it for what he's telling you to do it. You're taking his capital and giving him none of the credit. Okay? So the first reason why God exists is because of culture. The second reason why God exists is because of creation. The third reason why God exists is not just culture and creation, but it's because of our consciences, our conscience. Okay? Look what Paul says later on in that book of, the book of Romans that I brought up earlier. Here's what he says. Romans 2, verse 12 through 15. He says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, I don't want you to miss verse 14 because this is important. This is where you see the conscience that God's given us. Indeed, it says, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show, listen to this, that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Paul says that the third reason why we know God exists is is not just because of the creation around us, it's because of the conscience inside of us. He says every single person on earth has been given a conscience. God's law is literally written on your heart, engraved on your heart. Now, a conscience, is what a conscience is. A conscience is a God-placed mechanism on our hearts that either accuses us 
or affirms us. It either confirms that what you're doing is right or it condemns you because what you did was wrong. It's a God-placed mechanism that tells you what is right and what is wrong. Now, you might be saying to me, well, I don't think this is a compelling argument because I personally don't feel bad about any of the stuff I do. My conscience is clear. You should have seen what I did last night. And I slept like a baby. No guilt whatsoever. Well, the reason why is actually the same reason why we brought up in the previous point. The reason why is because as you continually choose a lifestyle that does not honor God, at some point God gives you over to your sin. And so your thinking becomes futile and your heart becomes darkened. There's actually a passage in Timothy where Paul is writing to his mentee, Timothy. Paul's the mentor, he's the mentee. And Paul writes to Timothy, he's talking to him about the false teachers. And he says, listen, the reason why the false teachers are behaving the way they're behaving is because their consciences have been seared. That's what he says. Literally, like it's like there was, someone put a hot iron to the nerve of their conscience and now they don't feel anything anymore. Did you know that your conscience can be seared? Did you know that you can become futile in your thinking? You know that your heart can become darkened? And so the reason why your conscience doesn't work is because you, you never used it. And so eventually it just goes away. And that's why there's so many things that you uh, maybe initially were exposed to. Maybe you go to college or, or you go to this new place, right? And you're like, wow, I've never seen people talk like that or behave like that. Well, what a shocking lifestyle. How sinful is that? How sinful is that? And then the longer you're in that context, it's like a, the frog in the pot. The, the, the water keeps getting hotter. And before you know it, the thing that used to shock you doesn't even bother you anymore. That's living proof that your conscience can be calloused. It can be hardened. It can be seared. Paul says. And you know what I love about this third point? What I love about this third point is that I, I feel like it gets to the heart of the human problem. I heard a pastor say this. He said that the heart of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. Right? Here's what's fascinating about this third argument. That it goes after the very thing that I think most keeps people from believing in God. I would argue that many of the people here who doubt the existence of God, you don't doubt the existence of God because of intellectual reasons. It's because of behavioral reasons. So, so, so follow with me here. I believe that the thing that keeps you from believing in God is not the doubts in your head. It's the sins of your hands. It's not the doubts in your mind, it's the sins of your flesh. So, so, so you, it's not that you, it's, it's not even that you struggle with God existing, it's you really don't want God to exist. Because if God exists, then you have to change how you live and you don't want to change how you live. That's why one of the apologists that I really like, an apologist is someone who defends a, a faith, a particular faith. There's one guy that I, that I really like and here's what he does whenever he's arguing with an atheist. He's visiting a college or a university. If there's an atheist who's arguing with him, he says to him right at the beginning, he says, let me ask you a question. If I am able to answer all your doubts and answer all your questions intellectually, would you believe Christianity? If I'm able to answer every question, would you believe Christianity? If the person says no, he's like, well, then let's not even talk. Because what that tells me is that your problem isn't intellectual, it's behavioral. You don't really care if it's true. You're going to just keep throwing arguments and red herrings out because you just want to keep doing what you're doing. That's why there was this one atheist who I read uh, uh, this week who I really appreciated him. He said, look, the reason why I don't believe in God is not because I struggle with it intellectually. It's because I don't want to stop sleeping with my girlfriend. At least he's honest. 
A lot of us walk away from the faith. We grow up in church and we walk away from the faith. Not because we have all these intellectual, existential, you know, doubts. It's because we just want to go drink and not feel bad about it. We want to party and not feel bad about it. I think the best thing we can do is be honest about that. Okay. So, the first reason why God exists uh, is because of culture. Uh, that's the first argument. The second argument is creation. The third argument is conscience. And then I would argue that the fourth and final argument, and actually what I would say it's the most compelling argument, is Christianity. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, Christianity? What a, what a lame ending. Like, that, that's what we're going with? That, that's the last one, right? What's so compelling about that? Here's why the fourth argument has to be Christianity. Because if I were to stop after the first three arguments, let's say I would, have, I would have done the first three and said amen. The problem with ending the sermon there is that all I've done up to that point is I've promoted monotheism. That's all I've done. And what I mean by monotheism, monotheism is a, a worldview or a religion that believes there's one God. So in other words, up to this point, I could have preached this sermon in any mosque, in any synagogue, and nobody would have been offended. Any Jew or Muslim could have heard everything I just said and said, amen, brother. You got it. And so the reason why this fourth point has to be here, this fourth argument has to be made, is because I believe that Christianity is radically different than any other religion that's ever existed. Here's why. Because every other religion that's ever existed is like a ladder that you are to climb. Here's what I mean. Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, you know, whatever religion you want, you want to put in there, every other religion, Buddhism, every other religion falls into this camp. It's the ladder religion. So, 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 so whatever your religion, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or whatever it is, here's the, here's the ladder. And when you go to church, that's one wrong. And when you give money, that's another wrong. And when you behave and obey, that's another wrong. And the more obedient you are, the further up you move up that ladder and then the, the happier that deity is with you. A lot of people think that that's what Christianity is, but Christianity is not that. Christianity is very, very far from that. And I'm going to prove it to you by reading to you from Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21 is the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. It's the, it's the, it's the beginning of the Passion Week, so the week Jesus dies, right, Easter week. And, and Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And look what happens. Verse 6, it says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. This is exciting times, people. And asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, stop there for a second. This is exactly what the Jews are waiting for. The Jews are pumped, right? They're excited because ever since the Old Testament, ever since Genesis, they've been looking and waiting for a promised Messiah that was going to fix everything. He was going to deal with their biggest problem. He was going to take down their greatest enemy. Right? He came to deal with their greatest need. But up to that point, what they thought, they thought their greatest need, their greatest issue, their greatest problem, their greatest enemy was Rome. Their problem was primarily a political problem. And so they needed a political deliverer. They needed a conquering king to come deliver them from their enemies, to come deliver them from their problems. 
Now, here's the thing about Jerusalem that you might not know. The way the city of Jerusalem was established was there was different gates that would lead you to different parts of the city. But there was one gate in particular that if you went through that gate, it would take you directly to the Roman garrison. Now, the reason why that's important is because the Roman garrison was where all the bad guys were. That's where all the soldiers were. That's where all the enemies were. So you would think that the gate that Jesus entered would have been the, the gate that would have taken him to the bad guys. But that's not the gate that Jesus enters. He goes through a completely different gate and ends up at a completely different destination. And look what it says here in verse 12. It says, Jesus entered not the Roman garrison. He entered the temple courts. Then the dude walks in. He doesn't start singing songs and preaching sermons. It says that he gets there and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and benches in the benches of those selling doves. Jesus Christ goes in through the gate that took him not to the garrison but to the temple. You know why? Because he knew that the greatest problem that the Jews had, this latter religion called Judaism had, is that they thought their greatest problem was Rome. But Jesus knew that their greatest problem was their rebellion. They thought that their greatest problem was political. Jesus shows up and says, no, your greatest problem is spiritual. They thought their biggest problem was the Romans. Jesus says, no, your greatest problem is your man-made religion. He goes to the temple and starts flipping tables. And I, for those of you who, who, who see the picture of blonde, flowy Jesus with, like the, with the matching sandals and the matching purse, Jesus was a, a, a carpenter, a construction worker with muscles. So when that dude starts flipping stuff, nobody's talking back to him. His flowy blonde hair wasn't flowing in the wind. Okay? He starts flipping tables because he knew that their greatest problem was them. Not Romans, but them. Okay? Now, why is that important to us today? Because I would argue that the same problem they had is the same problem we have. You and I, because we think Christianity is a religion, a ladder that which we climb, we believe that here's what happens when you have a ladder religion. The people who are going up the ladder and doing well get prideful, and the people who aren't making any progress get despair, feel despair. Because it's all either you, you, you make it or you don't make it. That's what a religion does. Okay? So the same problem that the Jews had, a latter religion, is the same problem that we had. We think that we are primarily good people. And the problem is a political problem. And the problem is a financial problem. And the problem is an economic problem. Jesus shows up and says, no, 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 no. The problem is not that. The problem is you. You can't be the solution because you are the problem. And I came to deal with the problem. See, we, we expect Jesus to be this conquering king. We want Jesus because we think we're pretty good people who just need a little help. We just need a life coach. Listen, Jesus didn't come to be your life coach. Jesus came to be your life. Okay? You're not a good person who just needs an example to follow. You're not just a decent person who needs a, 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 a hero to inspire you. You are a sinner who needs a, sin, a savior to save you. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus Christ came and by, by, by meeting God's standards, he gave us God's salvation. Jesus Christ shows up and by, by taking on our, condom, our condemnation, now we get his commendation. He comes to be not the God that we wanted, he came to be the God that we needed. That's who Jesus Christ is. Jesus shows up and he says to us, listen, every other religion is about do. Christianity is about done. 
Jesus came to destroy and to completely demolish our religion of guilt to give us a relationship of grace. He is the one who you've been waiting for. He is the God. Not the one you wanted, the one you needed. What's beautiful about this in Romans is that in Romans chapter 2, it says that God's wrath is revealed because he gives us over to sin. Right? But what's beautiful about that book of Romans is a few chapters later, it says that God's love is revealed because he gave his son for our sin. The same Greek word, give. So God's wrath is revealed by giving us over to sin. And then a few chapters later, God's love is revealed by giving his son over for sin. The reason why Christianity is different from any other religion is because Christianity is not a ladder that you climb. Christianity is a cross that someone died on for you and for me. There's no religion, there's no worldview that is more honest about the problem and yet at the same time more hopeful about the solution. So the answer to the question, to is there a God, the answer is yes. And that God is a person and that person is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we want to thank you for who you are and for what you've done. And Lord, I just want to pray right now. Right now, God, I want to pray. There's people here who know that this sermon was for them. Like even now, they're, they're sitting there, they're like, how did this guy know all the stuff that was going on in my life? Lord, there's people here who you are calling to yourself. There's people here right now who you want to have a relationship with. And their reason for why they believe there is no God, it could be any reason. But the reality is that you are the answer to that question. And I pray that today would be the day that they would finally place their faith in you. I want everyone to keep your eyes closed and head bowed. Listen, if you're sitting here this morning and, and you're saying, you know, I, I've, I've never heard any of this before. I don't know if I know this Jesus. I don't know if I've ever placed my faith in Jesus. I don't know if I've ever given my life to this Jesus. Listen, this morning is the morning to do that. God is speaking to you. God is calling you right now to come to him. In your bulletins, when you got here, you got a bulletin. There's a connect card in that bulletin. There's some bubbles there that you can fill out. The first one says, I have prayed to receive Jesus as my Savior. Listen, if that's you this morning, do that now. Fill that bubble out. Tell us, let us know that you've taken that step. And in a moment, we're about to take offering and the ushers are about to come forward. Take that card and put it in the offering. Let us know that you've made this decision so that we can rejoice with you, so we can pray with you. Because the Bible says that you have gone from death to life, from a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, if you have taken that step. Lord, now I pray for these people who have just taken this step, for the person who even now is still fighting it, work in their life, make yourself real to them. And Lord, I pray for our offering. I pray that, that, that you would bless these tithes and offerings and that many offering plates would have these cards of people who are taking this step towards you for the first time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...